Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is a returning guest, uh, Dr. Andy Starin. Uh, earned his PhD in systematic theology from the Catholic University of America and has degrees from uh, Georgetown University and the University of Chicago. He's taught at a variety of schools, including Georgetown, Catholic University of America, Wheeling Jesuit, and Regis and Regis Jesuit in Denver, Colorado. In 2017, he published a book with Fortress Press called The Gift of Love, Augustine, Jean-Luc Marion and the Trinity. First of all, Dr. Starin, welcome. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you having me today. Uh, I'd like to talk about um, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, which, of course, these guys are, are uh, you know, very sort of famous and well-read, um, often read when I, when I turn to Amazon.com to see, you know, which books in uh, Christian theology are often read. C.S. Lewis's books are always at the top. And, of course, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings series and movies are, are very popular. And there's a lot of discussion about these two men individually. But what I want to focus our conversation on today is their friendship, which it's often noted that they were friends, but I don't think uh, this question is explored enough. So I want to talk about their friendship and then maybe how their friendship can sort of uh, teach us something in the 21st century uh, today about friendship. I've, I've often talked on this podcast about I think um, there's a serious problem in our culture today about friendship. So why don't we start, even though probably our audience knows uh, a decent amount of, of these two men, why don't we start with uh, brief biographies of both of them? Okay, uh, great. Uh, Tolkien was uh, the J.R.R. that's, um, you know, his initials is John Ronald Rule. And he was born in 1892 in South Africa. Um, and from an early age, he was um, immersed in language. His, his mother taught him languages, and um, he found himself drawn to language and story and mythology. Uh, in, in, in fact, as early as 1904, he was starting his own language creation, uh, which um, in kind of in, invited him also to create a, a mythology, a, a land where that language could be spoken. And for, for anyone who's familiar with Lord of the Rings, uh, you, you may be familiar with the fact that he began with the language, uh, with the Elvish, and then 
asked himself, well, where, where might the, such a language exist? And, and the mythology around Lord of the Rings developed from there. Um, he, he was, um, you know, he ended up meeting um, his, his eventual spouse, Edith, um, and it took a bit of time before they, they ended up together. Uh, he served in World War I, and, and that's worth noting that um, he and, and Lewis and several of their friends in Oxford were all veterans of World War I, and they were drawn together for a lot of reasons, but in part from that shared experience um, during the war. Uh, but going back to the language and the mythology, Tolkien was very interested in creating a mythology for England, um, something to uh, something that would kind of root the English people in a, a common story. Uh, he, you know, the Arthurian legends were a possibility, but they, the influence of, of French and eventually, you know, ultimately the, the Latin world um, kind of turned him off from the Arthurian legends. And um, so he, he was kind of trying to create his own, his own way of uh, his own world. And, and that's often the, the statements about Lord of the Rings, right? Is that Tolkien's created a, an entire world. It's not just a story about certain characters, but there's a, um, there's a feeling of reality, of, of depth, of three-dimensionality, of the expanse of time, going back to um, you know, previous eras in the, in the Lord of the Rings world, which he, he of course lays out in, in uh, countless volumes that his, his son Christopher published after his death. Um, but this entire kind of mythology, um, all of the legends, all of the tales, all of the songs help create, you know, I keep using the word depth of, of a reality um, of, of the fact that his world is, is given. It's not something that um, he's creating on the spot, but he's telling a story that takes place in, in, in a world that seems real. Um, would also point out that that Tolkien had a um, a love of of home, of um, friendships, of family, um, and would, despite the fact that he was a professor at Oxford, would uh, always hold to a respect and admiration of everyday people. Uh, we we see that in his um, making the hobbits the hero of the heroes of his story. So um, I'll, I'll switch to Lewis and then talk about when the two of them kind of came together. Um, Lewis was born in 1898 um, in uh, Northern Ireland and, and would eventually um, move with his family to England. And he often talks about, or in many of his, um, certainly his autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy, he talks about he and his brother, Warren, um, turning the lid of a biscuit tin into kind of a, a, a glimpse of a different world by bringing things like grass and moss and pebbles and kind of creating this image of, of a beautiful ideal world. And, and Lewis would describe that as the first beauty he ever knew. And that, that beauty would um, call to him for the rest of his life, this desire to, to kind of capture um, in words the feeling that he had when looking at this um, miniature land. Uh, his, his autobiography, again, talks a significant amount about his schooling, and it's very clear that he um, struggled as a student, not academically, but socially. Uh, his, his memories of his time at school are filled with 
um, feeling alone about um, descriptions of, of the cruelty that other kids would, um, with which other kids would treat him. And um, despite this, of course, he, um, he, he was extremely well-read and, and succeeded as a student for the most part. Um, he uh, would fall under the, the tutelage of a, a man named William Kirkpatrick and um, Kirkpatrick, who Lewis would call the great knock, um, would prepare him for his, his entrance to university. Uh, Kirkpatrick would kind of solidify Lewis's atheism, an atheism that developed when, when Lewis's mother died, um, when he was young. Um, but it, you know, that was kind of a, a childlike, emotionally driven atheism. God didn't save my mom, therefore what good is God? Um, but later in life, he would kind of come to um, a more intellectual um, defense of his atheism through, through this, um, the influence of Kirkpatrick. But Kirkpatrick also taught him to think clearly and to be able to argue clearly. And, and those skills would remain with Lewis for the rest of his life. Uh, he did attend Oxford, um, but after Tolkien, did, they, didn't, they didn't overlap as students. Uh, but again, Lewis served in World War I. Uh, he was injured, um, spent some time recuperating. Uh, there's a, a strange relationship that comes out of World War I where one of Lewis's uh, fellow soldiers asked Lewis to take care of his mom if something should happen to him. And Lewis started this um, caretaking relationship with a woman named Mrs. Moore. And it was always a relationship that Lewis's friends would look on with curiosity and suspicion. Um, it's not clear what kind of relationship they had. Um, but Lewis would note from the beginning that taking care of this woman was a, a cure for self-absorption, <laughs> that having somebody else to care about in his life would, um, would keep him from, from becoming too uh, focused on it. Um, so eventually, the, the two of them would... Um, come together at, at Oxford, um, where Tolkien was um, a professor of, of languages uh, and Lewis of literature. And um, eventually Lewis leaves Oxford because his, his position was not as secure as Tolkien's. But in any case, they, they met each other there. Um, and they met on um, May 11th, 1926. And it was a, a, a tea and they chatted for a while. Um, Lewis refers to Tolkien as a smooth, pale, fluent little chap. And Tolkien notes about Lewis that there's no harm in him. He only needs a smack or so. Um, but the friendship would begin from that. Um, you know, the, the friendship that would develop from um, kind of cozy conversations around fire. And um, in this case, flowing tea, but eventually flowing beer. And the, the two of them uh, very quickly recognized in each other um, kind of kindred minds, if not at this point, kindred souls yet, kindred minds where they were both um, brilliant. Um, they, they knew their, their academic material, certainly, but their brilliance wasn't um, just a matter of Tolkien's in language and Lewis in, in literature, but their brilliance um, moved into ways of appreciating literature and appreciating myth as, um, as glimpses into 
what is most real about our lives. Um, so the relationship developed and, and the friendship would be the center of a, of a growing group of friends who would eventually call themselves the Inklings. Why, why do they call themselves the Inklings? The, the, the term um, seems to come from two different um, kind of sources coming together. One certainly that reference to ink and, and writing, but the other one is, is seems this kind of having an inkling of, of truth, having an inkling of ultimate reality. Um, you know, it's a little playful. Uh, I, I, I think it's been the, the envy of all sorts of um, artists and academics for decades that there was this great group and they had a name and, and it kind of was a, was a solid ongoing group. I mean, there, was, right. there were people who entered and people who left, but it, but it seemed to be a, a pretty consistent group of, of men um, who, a, a, really a club. Um, the Inklings, you know, it was Lewis and Tolkien were at the center of things. Uh, if, and if anybody really was at the center, it seemed to be Lewis himself. Um, his personality was uh, much more gregarious than, than Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien seems to have been a, um, a quieter, um, more pensive um, thinker and writer. You know, he, he really just wrote, wrote one book. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he did have others, but, but it, it, we have the, like this one masterwork, whereas Lewis churned out books um, pretty quickly. Um, Lewis was described by a British poet as breezy, tweedy, beer drinking, and jolly. And so you can see kind of him being at the center of this table where they would meet and talk. Uh, Lewis's brother Warren was a member, um, uh, editor at Oxford University Press and, and novelist and playwright uh, and theologian Charles Williams was another member. So, so they had a lot of, of brilliant artists and writers, um, but they, all men, uh, the closest thing a woman came to being a member seemed to be Dorothy Sayers, uh, who, Lewis had a lot of respect for, but, but this group would meet for quite some time, for, for well over a decade, um, a couple times a week. The, the details of their meeting would sometimes shift with, with circumstances, but uh, for kind of a, a sense of things, uh, they would spend, for instance, one night, like Thursday night in Lewis's uh, office at Oxford, his, his rooms at Oxford, when they would sit around and eat and drink and and talk, and then they would spend maybe Tuesday mornings at a local pub called the Eagle and Child that they nicknamed Bird and Baby. And um, they would sit around and they would talk. And I think it's worth reading uh, Lewis's brother Warren, his account, a short account here of um, what one of these meetings looked like. Uh, Warren writes, the ritual of an inklings was unvarying. When half a dozen or so had arrived, tea would be produced, and then when pipes were well alight, Jack would say, Jack meaning the uh, C.S. Lewis, Jack was the nickname he picked as a child because he didn't like the name Clive. Um, but Jack would say, well, has nobody got anything to read us? And out would come a manuscript and we would settle down and sit in judgment upon it. Real unbiased judgment too, since we, since we were no mutual admiration society. Praise for good work was unstinted, but censure for bad work or even not so good work, was often brutally frank. To read it to the Inklings was a formidable ordeal. So this was a, a literary gathering where they would read works in progress. So uh, the Lord of the Rings, um, 
you know, Tolkien read the Lord of the Rings as he went through. Lewis would read his books as they went through. The others would read their work. And they would discuss and argue and, um, and encourage one another. Um, on September 19, 1931, for any Lewis, like real Lewis fan, this date is, is of significant importance. Um, one of the Inklings, Hugo Dyson, Tolkien and Lewis were walking along Addison's Walk, one of these kind of paths, these mini hikes around Oxford. And they were having a debate about myth. And at this point, again, Lewis was a atheist. Um, he was, had been baptized into the Church of Ireland, but at this point he was an atheist. Tolkien um, was a Catholic his entire life. And they were arguing about myth and about the function of myth. And Tolkien was able to convince Lewis at this point that the story of Jesus was an instance of myth entering history. And Lewis's respect for Tolkien, I think, is, is one of the first absolutely brilliant Christians that he had met. Um, but also for his respect as a as a appreciate, you know, as one who appreciates the importance of myth and story. Um, was, was able to kind of open Lewis to this possibility. And, and he would credit this moment to when um, his conversion to Christianity really took hold. So Lewis was obviously, or Tolkien was obviously instrumental in Lewis becoming the person who um, Christians know as this, as this great Christian novelist and uh, writer and spiritual um, writer and apologist. Um, you, you had mentioned earlier that um, their, their friendship sort of started out intellectually and you sort of traced some of these sort of the re the literature readings that they'd have together um but then you sort of said it moved on deeper to sort of a, the, the spirit or the soul right so, yeah so away from the mind to the heart maybe can you talk more about that transition and it's not just hey we're a bunch of smart guys that like to impress each other with our intelligence but but um you know uh, 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 an, in, an integrated relationship not just sort of a gnostic uh, mental uh, friendship, but a, a truly integrated friendship. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, these guys are academics, right? They're, they're professors at Oxford. And, and so it, it makes a lot of sense that they would be drawn to each other intellectually. Um, and at first, they did not share the common Christian faith. Um, but it was, I, at least my impression, and again, neither of these guys have written significantly on the emotional depths of their friendship, right? Like that, that's, those types of writings aren't, um, aren't numerous, but, but what we have here is a friendship that develops over conversation and not, not um, abstract conversation, but discussion about things that really mattered to them, in their stories, um, the faith, and how one is supposed to live in this world. Um, and th the, the various discussions about, one, about Christianity, I, th I think, was a way of taking the literature that they were so interested in and grounding it in, in their own hearts. Um, you know, we, Lewis, we can, look, we can look for a hint of this in Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Uh, one of the loves he talks about, one of the types of loves he talks about is friendship. And it doesn't take much to imagine that as Lewis is writing this chapter on friendship, he has the inklings in mind. 
Uh, he writes, he, he names some of the inklings, just throwing out kind of what feel like arbitrary names as he's writing. But, but if you know, you know, Ronald and Charles are probably uh, Tolkien and Charles Williams, right? And um, he discusses the importance of, of friendship as an unselfish form of love, that, uh, that people are kind of drawn by friends to a, a common love or a common goal that friends are focused on the same uh, truth together. They're not focused on each other as those in romantic love, but they're focused on the same truth. And so that truth though, for Christianity is, is love. And so I think, th I think that was part of the way in which this friendship developed. Uh, but it was a friendship that developed again in, in classroom or in, in academic spaces, in pubs, going for walks. Um, these were not people who, uh, I mean, Tolkien had a family. Lewis's family was very late in life. Uh, he was a bachelor for a lot of his life. And so the, the types of friendships that we think about where, where families are very integrated into one another's lives, where, you know, people come over for holidays or backyard barbecues, that's, that's not exactly what was going on here. So you, you mentioned a couple of times the, the idea of, of them meeting together in a pub. And of course, you know, to this day, um, people who go to Oxford can go and drink a beer in that pub and have their picture taken. And I think today we often kind of misunderstand the pub, right? When we think of bars, we think of, you know, these sports bars with a hundred televisions in the hall. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, uh, music blaring and waitresses walking around in short shorts. And that's that's not the type of pub that they that they were going to. So let's talk more about this idea of the pub specifically, but in general, the idea of space and the way that that this sort of facilitated their friendship. OK, that, that's a that's a good question. Uh, the, the pub, the Eagle and Child and, and Eagle and Child was certainly not the only place they ever talked. Um, it was one of their uh, more constant ones. And if you go to the Eagle and Child today, um, it's, it's been renovated over the years, certainly. But, but you can still walk in and it's, you know, the wall is paneled in dark wood and there's a fireplace there. And, and there are several rooms, none of which are terribly large. And on the wall, because the Eagle and Child lays claim to the Inklings fame, on the wall are several, several pictures of, of members of the Inklings and a, a plaque talking about that this is where they they met for so long. There's also, a, at least when I was there last, which was a while ago, uh, there was a framed letter to the proprietor of the pub um, signed by the various members of the Inklings at that point, uh, thanking him for his um, hospitality and, and care. So th the space was a space you know, they ate and they drank, but the space was a space of gathering. Um, you know, they would sit around and, and read. They would read to one another. So on one hand, it was, it was not like loud. It was boisterous in conversation, but it wasn't loud in the way that a sports bar would be. Or if I remember, it's been a while since I was in bars college but you know you go to one of these bars and it's hard to have a conversation because of right. the noise and the music and everything that's going on um, you know this was a space that was that was ordered towards facilitating conversation and 
it was also a space where they weren't hurried out, right? Um, you know, I, I've been to many a restaurants where as soon as we're done with the, with the last course, the waiter comes by and slips you the check and, you know, is, is kind of implying, okay, we have a, wait, a line waiting here. Uh, can you please leave the table? And you don't get the sense at all that during these, these um, times, you know, these mornings at the pub, that they were like rushed out. They're having a conversation about a draft of the Lord of the Rings. That, that may take a while, right? Um, right. So, the, so the pub is, is certainly a space that, well, a commercial space, right? The owner was trying to make money and, and everything. It, it served as a, as a common space. It wasn't just commercial. There, there was a, a communal element to it. Um, Lewis's uh, rooms, his, his office at, at Oxford, um, kind of served as another space for them and you know, a, a space that was also kind of cozy and welcoming. Uh, although they were Lewis's, you know, they, they were university spaces. And so it wasn't a, a private space, a place where, they, where everyone kind of felt comfortable to, to gather. And then I, I think it's also worth noting that they would go on these, as, as Lewis put them, these walks. And these walks were often through countryside or through farmland, and they would walk for hours. Lewis was usually at the center of these conversations, and he would proclaim that they were going for a walk, and the group would, would walk for hours and, and converse. And so this type of space, this, you know, some of the farmland was certainly owned by people, but this, this open, natural world where they could just go on these walks and talk uh, serve as another common space where they could gather and talk. Um, so I, I think this common space served as a served to facilitate their conversation and their friendship. Uh, space is is one of the way we often overlook the importance of space in the fostering of relationship, um, and specifically space that's not ordered towards accomplishing anything, ordered towards tasks. Right. Um, right. When they're sitting around talking the only thing they had to accomplish was maybe finishing their, their current pint or talking about whatever they wanted to talk about, often their own writing. But this, um, this openness, this revelry uh, gave them the chance to get to know one another and to, to grow and, and care for one another. I think these, I, I, you know, when you asked me to, to talk today, you asked about ways in which this friendship may give us some um, insight into relationships these days. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, Especially, I think, male friendship. You'd mentioned earlier that this was a group of men, and I think today some people might sort of uh, say, oh, they're patriarchal misogynists. But I think even today there should be spaces and places for for groups of female friends and male friends as well, separate. So – what can they teach us about maybe friendship in general, but specifically male friendship, which I think is, is lost today. Yeah. Um, well, as far as their misogyny, I think it's worth just um, talking about that is certainly Lewis and Tolkien were, were men of their time and place and um, the, the social norms and expectations were different. Um, they were professors at all male institutions. It served in, in a military that was, that was 
at least on the front lines, exclusively male. And, and so that was certainly their world. And, and you see the impact of that, for instance, in the lack of major female characters in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and you also see that the, the, you can often level, the, the criticism has been leveled at, at Lewis for the way that he treats the character of Susan in the Narnia books, that one of the four um, children who enter into Narnia in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe eventually becomes too grown up and too interested in things like makeup uh, to care about Narnia anymore. Um, and so Lewis has, has been, both of them have been um, rightly criticized for some of the way in which they, they wrote women and, and, and included or not included women in their books. Uh, but I, I, a helpful um, couple of points, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury has a great little book called The Lion's World where he talks about Narnia and he points out that despite the, I think, justified criticism of Lewis's writing of Susan, he makes Susan's sister, Lucy, the kind of most sympathetic hero of, of all of these books. Um, so, so Lucy is certainly a heroic character. And um, what I think is Lewis's most impressive work of fiction, Till We Have Faces, the kind of retelling of the Eros and Psyche myth, uh, the main character is is a woman, and and Lewis, um, I mean, we can debate what how effectively he writes her, but he writes her three dimensionally. Uh, so it, it is worth noting, like there is a conversation that one can have about all of that, and there are legitimate concerns about about that, the the lack of women in in their narratives. But like you said, there there's there's something valuable in um, and having these types of friendships and these these male friendships, and in the Four Loves again, Lewis talks about um, the ways in which the friendships are not possessive, and that the the lack of possession in true friendships, um, and the lack of like feeling like you owe somebody or there's a debt or that because this person helped me, I need to now help him. That, that, that the friendship that Lewis is holding up is, is free of, of all of those um, complicated uh, social interactions. Um, and so that's the sense of friendship that Lewis is, is offering to us. To the degree that that is um, translatable, I, th I think it's worth recognizing that having a space where, where men can gather and talk without, without necessarily maybe family concerns coming to the front or um, you know, having, I think any parent, for instance, not, surely relishes having a little bit of time when, when not needed um, to parent when their kids don't, don't have demands of them. Um, so I, I think the kind of regularity of their meeting, the, the fact that it was focused on um, common interests outside of themselves and the, the goal of pushing one another, um, in this case, it would be academically and artistically, but the goal of pushing one another uh, to, to be better um, thinkers and be better writers is, is something that I know, you know outside of graduate school, 
I'm not sure I've, I've had those types of experiences regularly throughout my life. And it's certainly something that um, I miss. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that friendships today are, especially among men, sort of uh, commodified relationships, right? What I can get from you and what you can get from me, um, I would say, are, you know, infe- an infection from our capitalist way of thinking that everything is a commodity to be exchanged. And you're saying that these men can offer us a model, sort of harkening back to Aristotle's vision that the highest form of friendship is is sort of loving you know the person for his sake or her sake mm-hmm. is that what you're sort of getting at i think so I, you know i i wouldn't say that all of our friendships are commodified but i do think that there's always a danger of that um, it's always lurking on the horizon um it's very easy to feel you know to feel the pressure of oftentimes kind of a justified um social expectation that if a friendship is is not benefiting you to to drop that person Um, and you know there's a lot of question you know issues of abuse and and stuff that that justifies that in certain circumstances but uh i I think there is a always a danger in in our commodification or in our in commodifying relationships um you know that's that's an element to play in in uh, romantic relationships as well. And, and Lewis wants to assert, I, I think you're right, he wants to assert the fact that the, the truest friendships are the ones where we do love one another for, in this case, his own sake. In fact, he, um, he also points out that it's not just, that friendships aren't just kind of one-on-one relationships, and, and certainly they can be, but that any true friends share a love for a common thing would welcome a third right if 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 a third comes along and and fits into this relationship then it should make everybody all the happier because now their their approach to you know in lewis and tolkien's um, uh, case god and in story their approach to god and stories is expanded it's thickened by this new person so the Inklings were always, well, they, they had very high standards for who gets to become a member. Uh, they were open to new members. Um, and Lewis points out in The Four Loves that when, one, when you lose a friend, when, and, and what he's describing is the death of Charles Williams, when you lose a friend, you don't only lose that person, but you lose the aspects of everybody else that that person brought out. So when Williams died, uh, he, Lewis not only lost his friend Charles, but he lost the particular aspects of Tolkien that Charles brought up. Uh, and, and that's, a, I, I think, a, a significant realization about um, community as well, and the, the way that community makes us better versions of ourselves. And it's not just kind of a one-on-one um, relationship. Are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like, who are we? What does it mean to be a human person? What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. 
Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, the University of St. Thomas. Let's let's interpret that a little bit theologically. You and I can't have any conversation where we don't get a little theological. So, yeah. I mean, as you talk about this idea of two people in a relationship or friendship being open to a third, right? The 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 images of the Trinity come to mind. Images of of you know marriages uh, being open to a third. In this case, children, mm-hmm. um, offspring. And of course, you know, in our in, in the context of today, uh, where we have over fifty percent divorce rate, we have people, uh, you know, dr- dropping numbers of people claiming to be Christian, not going to mass, not having children. Uh, especially in this pandemic, there was initially this expectation there would be a baby uh, boom because of the pandemic, but now it's kind of switched to thinking of a a, a bust. Um, what can we say, I guess, theologically about this idea of these two men uh, in their friendship being open to a third? Um, <laughs> I mean, you could, I think you may have written a book on something like that. Or, <laughs> yeah. What, what comes to your mind? Um, well, the, the immediate thing that comes to our mind, my mind is the way in which um, thirds um, can not always necessarily, but but can open up um, dualities in life-giving and creative ways. Um, and we have we have um, all sorts of of evidence in our world about um, two sides on on all sorts of issues. You know, there's there's left and the right. There's A and B. There's red and blue. Um, there's conservative and progressive. There's, um, it's, it's very easy and, and oftentimes intellectually lazy to, uh, to insist on dichotomies like that. Um, and it can be easy to look at Lewis and Tolkien and say, well, it's the two of them. What, what, what's going on with just the two of them? Um, the insistence that it's not just the two of them and it's not just a dichotomy of one side or another, um, or to, again, to look at something like marriage and say that, that that relationship is not just about them, but it's about, you know, certainly kids are a possibility, but it's also about what that relationship, how that relationship relates to the larger community. Um, it's why, you know, churches are so keen on having weddings um, in-house, right? Like a Catholic wedding is not just about the, the bride and the groom, but it's about the bride and the groom in the community. Um, so I, I think that insight of Lewis's about the way in which these genuine relationships, this, this form of love is open to um, a third, again, whether that third is an individual person or um, a, com- a larger community, uh, reminds us that you mentioned the Trinity, that God's love is, is, is an open love, right? It's, it's, a, it's not an exclusive love. Um, Boston College theologian um, Michael Hyams reminds us that, that God can never be my God, that the relationship I have with God is not just between me and God, but that that relationship always demands that I see God as close to me as the nearest person in need 
so I, I, I think that that tendency to look for that that openness that that the duality is always um, um, kind of the impulse of, of a genuine friendship is always towards an openness to others is is significant and, and an important um, again lesson that we can take from these guys and see in which the ways that we might be um, perhaps possessive of our relationships and the ways in which those relationships might be able to grow um, insofar as they they open up to others. You had mentioned earlier that when they met, um, Lewis was a, uh, not a Christian, although he was, he was baptized, uh, and then and that Tolkien was a, a large part of his conversion to Christianity, but he was not a Catholic. He became an Anglican. Uh, Catholics love uh, Lewis so much, I think they often forget he's not a Catholic. Um, I've often wondered who loves uh, Lewis more, the Catholics or the Anglicans. Um, but he wasn't a Catholic. And so this sort of ushers in the question of sort of ecumenical dialogue within their friendship. And of course, we're recording this during um, the week of the of the insurrection, the storming of the Capitol, which, you know, there's a lot of layers there. But one layer that we can talk about, obviously, is the failure of people who have differing views to have uh, constructive dialogue. And of course, in the Center for Faith and Culture, dialogue is kind of at the heart of what our mission is. So when you look at these two men, and yes, they're both Christians, and they were good friends, but they were not of the same flavor of Christianity. What can we say about their ecumenical dialogue? And what can that maybe teach us about our discussions today, whether it's religious or not, but any dialogue dealing with difference? Yeah, that's, that is a pertinent question, right? Uh, yeah, the, you know, T Tolkien was Catholic, and um, he writes really eloquently of, of his Catholic faith um, and the importance of, of one's kind of dedication to Mass. And he has a great line, and I don't have this in front of me right now, but he has a great line in one of his letters to his son, Christopher, about the importance of going to Mass when it's boring, right? To remind you that, that worshiping God is not just about your emotions, but about the, the, the habit of, of going back to God over and over. So, so Tolkien does write very, um, he writes of, of his deep faith. And, and even though that faith is um, not as explicit in his, his masterwork, The Lord of the Rings, um, he, he still kind of dances around that when he says, yeah, The Lord of the Rings is ultimately about raising up the lowly, the hobbits. Oh, that sounds a little bit like Magnificat, right? And Lewis was a was a um, you know he he began in the Church of, uh, of Ireland. He was involved with kind of the general um, Anglican Church, uh, but they they would never you know find a a, a common religious worship uh, community there, and so they would they would have those conversations. It's always been a suspicion of mine that the real reason Lewis doesn't become um, Catholic, not that he, 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 may, he maybe he had certain reasons, but part of those reasons anyway, was the fact that he prided himself on being a mere Christian, like the type of his book, Mere Christianity, a generalized Christian, um, as close as England can get to a non-denominational Christian, right? The, the denomination that is, is in the air there. Um, and that being Catholic would have been too partisan. But these guys disagreed on, on religious issues and they disagreed on story. 
and, and that might seem like a superficial thing to most of us. They disagreed on what kind of stories they should tell. But again, these, these guys came together on, on common views of the importance of stories. Um, one of the clearest examples of this is that well, Lewis was a big fan of the Lord of the Rings. And um, as Tolkien notes in his letters, Lewis was, was one of the kind of the, the in major encouraging forces behind the completion of, of that work. Tolkien did not like Narnia at all. Um, he was, you know, the, the moments in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe where Lewis um, blends worlds, where he brings kids from England into this magical land. Tolkien was just ardently against that. Um, the fact that, that Lewis includes a scene with Father Christmas showing up in Narnia, um, not only should, should cause us all some, some narrative questions about like, okay, why are we celebrating Christmas in a world where there's no Jesus? Right. Um, but, but Tolkien just like looked at that as, as kind of betraying the nature of, of this literature. Uh, they, they had a disagreement uh, about people. I mean, they, did, they would disagree about people, um, notably Charles Williams. Um, Lewis kind of fell under the influence of, of Williams and um, was, a, was a very big supporter of Williams's books um, and personally was very kind of shaped by, we'll call it Williams's um, kind of Platonism. Uh, Tolkien was, was although, although they seemed to have gotten along, you know, sitting around the table with one another, Tolkien was very suspicious of what he saw in Williams as kind of an esoteric leaning towards kind of magic. Um, we're not talking about like David Blaine magic, we're talking about um, kind of deep attempts to kind of control reality. Uh, and, and Tolkien was suspicious of that because of his, his own Catholicism. And um, eventually Lewis's marriage to um, the American Helen Joy Davidman Gresham would, um, in, the, in the way in which that marriage happened, would kind of distance the two of them. So, th so they disagreed on stuff. They certainly disagreed on literature and they would argue, they would debate. Uh, Lewis was, was certainly a loud debater, a passionate debater. Tolkien was, was um, not as, as um, maybe, uh, Boisterous, <laughs> boisterous uh, as as Lewis, but was you know as sharp intellectually, and the two of them would, would be kind of the center of these these debates. But they were always able to put those debates aside and support one another. Um, and Did work they have to decide on how to do that that maybe huh. we've lost. I think part of it is the, and I, I would say most of it anyway is the insistence on the common um, truth or the common goal. You know, the two of them were so convinced eventually with Lewis of, of God and so convinced that telling a good story um, can bring people to God, right? That, um, that and, and this is now quoting um, contemporary English writer, Neil Gaiman, who writes myth and fantasy and all sorts of stuff. But, but in a chapter that he wrote on Lewis and Tolkien, he comments that the best way to show people true things is from a direction that they had not imagined truth coming. And I think Lewis and Tolkien were, were both like 
convinced of that, right? We can bring people to God if we tell a good story. And so that goal superseded any sort of um, argument about even like religious practice or, or um, critic, you know, maybe the, the way that one of them would have felt personally insulted by the criticism of his work. Uh, the, the fact that they were, they were focused first and foremost on God um, allowed those, those things that could turn into slight, you know, those slights or those criticisms that, that could become personal slights. It allowed them to let go of those things. Um, you know, in the best of academic situations, even today, we hope that <laughs> it doesn't play out this way, right? We know that. But, but we hope that the, the criticisms we level at one another um, aren't taken personally, but that help us all come to a clearer understanding of what we're talking about. So would you go as far then as saying that maybe the reason that today we have a breakdown in dialogue is that we've lost uh, a, a, a common telos uh, in, in this sort of postmodern world, not even so much just that the idea of the sort of Judeo-Christian West, but just the idea that um, we can strive towards something called truth, whatever that truth is. Uh, and since, you know, this, this sort of relativist vision that there is no truth uh, means that we, we can't strive towards anything, and then therefore that results in a in a breakdown in dialogue, would you go as far as saying that? Um, I yeah, I I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure Lewis and what Lewis and Tolkien would actually say about being, you know, in 2021. I'm always hesitant to speculate about what geniuses would have to say about sure. contemporary situations, but I think that is an implication that we can take from that. I, right. I certainly do. I um, I think that that having a common goal, or even or even the fact that we're always being kind of tempted and shaped by materialism, um, you know, by, by a sense of the end of, of the goal of our, of our activity is the acquisition of more stuff, um, certainly material stuff, but even titles and promotions and, and honors, um, that, that we were presented with this ideal life that we ought to have that's, that's ultimately sold to us so that people could make money off of us. Um, that there's no, I mean, if, if my goal is to have the biggest house and the nicest stuff and the new phone, and that's your goal, then you and I don't have anything outside of ourselves to, to help one another towards. So I, I think that, that idea of, of a loss of a common goal um, you know, whether it's even whether it's a religious goal, I would, I would I would argue that religious goals are the only ones that are really transcendent enough to to, to function this way. But mm. um, but even you know a common sense of what our nation ought to be. Um, I, I don't I I think without that ability to have those conversations about who we ought to be as a nation, um, who we ought to be as a community, um, we without that friends don't have anything to look towards, anything to help one another towards. Yeah. Um, Lewis died before Tolkien died. And, and um, can you talk about how sort of Tolkien responded to the death of, of his friend? Yeah. Um, so, so Lewis died on November 22nd, 1963. 
same day Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and he had been he had been sick leading up to that. Um, as his brother puts it, a, a combination of old man diseases. Uh, but they, Lewis and Tolkien had, their friendship had, um, I don't know what the right word is, um, di- had grown distant in the last years of, of Lewis's life. Part of that was that Lewis took a position at the University of Cambridge. So he wasn't physically present in the same way. And that goes back, I think, to, to this idea of space, right? That, that being physically present to one another um, helps maintain our friendships. I, I would I would argue that that's one of the reasons why, um, one of the reasons why so many friendships develop in college because you're, you're in this common space with one another um, all the time, right? Um, but, but Lewis wasn't physically present anymore. And the position at Cambridge came um, through Tolkien's support. I mean, Tolkien never tired of um, praising Lewis's merits to anybody who would listen. And so he helped Lewis get that job at Cambridge. Uh, part of it would also be Lewis's marriage, um, which, you know, there's, there are lots of biographies that, that talk about this marriage. And Lewis talks about the death of his wife in, in his heartbreaking, brilliant book, um, A Grief Observed. But the, the wedding was a certainly unconventional one. Um, Lewis married Joy um, as a way of getting her um, legal permission to stay in England. Uh, and eventually they would fall in love and um, have a Christian marriage later on. But th- th- that whole progression certainly wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't always clear or didn't always make sense to Tolkien. But anyway, so, so their friendship um, grew distant in those later years. But I think it, Tolkien writes to his daughter, um, Priscilla, um, four days after Lewis dies. And since I first read this, I, I, it's, it's been kind of burned into my mind. Uh, Lewis, or Tolkien writes on November 26, 1963 to his daughter, dearest, thank you so much for your letter. So far I have felt the normal feelings of a man my age like an old tree that is slowly losing, is, is losing all of its leaves one by one. This, this feels like an ax blow near the roots. Very sad that we should have been so separated in the last years, but our time of close communion endured in memory for both of us. And then he goes on to describe the, the funeral. Um, but that image of uh, kind of Tolkien growing older and slowly losing his leaves and Tolkien all the tree image um, is not incidental, but but Lewis's death being an axe blow at his roots. Um, I, I I think that illustration or that that image gives us a sense of how much this friendship meant to Tolkien. You know, we, we talked earlier about how important Tolkien was to Lewis and Lewis's conversion, um, but here we get a glimpse of of how Lewis was a stabilizing root, right? A stabilizing presence in Tolkien's life and that this friendship um, helped Tolkien be who he ended up becoming as well. Helped him become the author of the Lord of the Rings, helped him um, be the the Christian that he he became. So I, I, um, you know, Lewis died in in 63 and um, 
it would Tolkien would die in, in ten years later in 1973. So he did have some time without Lewis, but um, but Lewis's death obviously shook Tolkien, as any is the death of any friend would would shake one of us. Um. Final question. We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. Um, how does this friendship, when you read it or read about it, how does this friendship between these two men inspire hope in you? Um, I, so I, I think we can kind of maybe take a glimpse at what Lewis says at the end of his Narnia books. Um, in the last battle, we see the kind of Narnian end times, right? The Narnian apocalypse. And all of the main characters find themselves in what Lewis calls Aslan's country, right? The kingdom of God. This is Lewis's image of heaven. And they keep traveling deeper and deeper, further up and further in, as they say, into this land until they start seeing things that look, that look familiar to one another. And... Um, the, the conclusion is that everything that is good in Narnia, and they, they also say everything that is good about England, where these like children have first came from, everything that is good is saved in Aslan's country. Um, and the, the theological implication of that is that everything that is good about our, about our lives, within our lives, the life-giving relationships, the experiences we have, good places, uh, the good things, the trees that, that draw us, um, draw our attention towards heaven, what, whatever it is, that these things aren't lost, right? That, that because they are good, because they are, part, they, they are part of God and they're part of God's creation, part of God's heart. And so they can't be lost. Um, and, and so I, keeping that in mind, I think that's a helpful kind of way of um, Approaching this last line that, that I'd like to mention, um, Lewis writes to Tolkien, all of my philosophy of history hangs upon a sentence of your own. Deeds were done which were not wholly in vain. Um, so, so Lewis is quoting Tolkien here and saying like, everything I, I think about when it comes to, to human history, it comes to the narratives that we tell about who we are and where we're going, comes down to your line. Again, I, I, I which speaks to the, the influence that they had on one another. It comes down to your line that we've done things that were not holy. And the holy is a rhetorical move, right? Um, recognizing that much of what we do um, is, is mired in sin and selfishness. But Lewis offers us this hope that there are things in our lives that are good. There are things in, in our lives that, that God will hold on to even after we die and even after um, the world passes away. Um, we use all sorts of metaphors to talk about you know, heaven as a kingdom or as the new, new Jerusalem um, banquets. And you know, all of these, these images try to invoke something, uh, try to invite us into something. But I think Lewis's image of like, there is good that is part of our lives that will not be lost. We've done things that are not wholly in vain. And for Lewis and Tolkien, one of those things has to be their friendship. That whatever heaven is, whatever the kingdom of God looks like, um, that they will have a table, right? That the two of them will be able to sit together and 
drink whatever the version of heavenly beer is and and continue their conversation well dr Starin, my friend it's always good to be with you even if it's only virtually hopefully soon after this pandemic we can get together in a pub and drink a beer thank you so much for joining me all right you're welcome thank you for having me are you looking for answers to life's biggest questions like who are we what does it mean to be a human person What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? How can I be a prophetic voice in our culture? The Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston now offers its MA in Faith and Culture online. This program transforms students by immersing you in the historical, cultural, and theological patrimony of the Catholic tradition so that you'll go out into the dominant American culture and leaven it with the good news. Students can audit courses, get an 18-hour certificate, or go for the entire MA program. For more information, Google Center for Faith and Culture, University of St. Thomas.